Welcome to the world of the technical glitch this morning. It is a bit. You please know my talk is all on paper, so we'll be all right. <laughs> um, I just wanted to show you those um, scenes. They were actually shot nearly 70 years ago um, in Paris and show some of the scenes of uh, the liberation of Paris that took place towards the end of the Second World War. So you'll know that Paris was occupied by German forces during the Second World War. And isn't it amazing it's in colour? Because history is always in black and white, isn't it? So it must be a sign of the times that history is actually now not in black and white anymore, but it's in colour. So and I wanted to show you those pictures that to kind of because something similar to that happened 2,000 years ago and about 2,000 miles away from where that was shot. And I wanted to capture some of the, the joy on the people's faces and the, the people lying in the streets. And we call this event that happened 2,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away, we call it Palm Sunday. Of course, there's no videos, no video footage of Palm Sunday. There's no photographs. But we know it was significant because it was told, the story was told in all four of the Gospels. Not every story is told in all four, but this one was. So we know it was really important. And I'm going to read it to you from Mark and chapter 11. And it says this, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Any of you who've ever been brought up in church from a young age and been to Sunday school or junior church or Discovery Zone or whatever it was called, will know all about Palm Sunday. You'll have made little palm crosses. You will have coloured in pictures of donkeys and palm leaves and all the rest of it. But it might feel like a dim and distant memory. And there may be some of you here who are actually fairly new to faith and go, I have no idea what anyone is talking about. So I want to start this morning with a little bit of a, how did we get to Palm Sunday? So basically, the Jewish people, the Old Testament is the story of the Jewish nation and their dealings with God, who they called Yahweh. And Basically, the Jews had a bit of a problem, and before we get too detrimental to them, it's a problem that we all have, in that things would go really well for them. They would have really good times. And when times are good, you tend sometimes to slack off, don't you, with God, and perhaps move away and a bit more focused on your own life and having a good time and enjoying the times that are there. And that's what they did. 
And gradually idols crept in and things began to go downhill. Problems would come, troubles would come, they'd get invaded. And when they were at their lowest ebb and things were really going terribly for them, God would send along a prophet. Someone with a great name like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Names that don't tend to come back into fashion, do they? And I did actually check this morning on Facebook to see what the Welchies had called their baby. Just before I announced that these were no longer fashionable names, just in case. But we're okay because they went with Noah, so that's fine. And these prophets, they came and they spoke God's heart to the people. And they called them to repentance. And the people would come to repentance. They'd come back to Yahweh, come back to worshipping him. And things would be okay again for a while. It would be the cycle over and over. And as I say, before we get too critical, we need to recognise that in our own lives too. Back in Old Testament times, the people weren't able to come into God's presence the way we can, the way that we have done already this morning. That was the job only of the high priest. And then only at certain times of the year. And then only after he'd performed loads of cleansing rituals There was so much complication, so complicated. There was animal sacrifices, which is why if you're fairly new to faith, we don't advise you starting to read the Bible at Leviticus because you might be thinking, what on earth is that about and what's going on? It's so complicated. But all the way through these prophets, not only were they calling the people to repentance, but they were also showing, foretelling that there was going to become a a messiah a saviour, a deliverer, and he was going to, once and for all, sort things out. That's why when we celebrate Christmas, we get verses and passages read, not just from the New Testament, but also from the Old. Because Isaiah said, thousands of years before Jesus was born, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, we'll call him Emmanuel. He was foretelling the birth of Christ. So the day comes, Jesus is born, as predicted in Bethlehem, a virgin birth. He grows up and at the age of 30, he begins three years of ministry. Now he lived in the area which we now know as Israel, but at the time of Jesus, that whole area was occupied. So it's a little bit like living in Paris during the Second World War, under Roman occupation though. Part of the Roman Empire and under the ruling of the Herods, there's probably no one in this room today who knows what it's like to live in a nation that's occupied by an oppressor. Probably nobody. All we know about is what we see in films, isn't it? But just think about it. Try and put yourself in that position. You can't go about your everyday business freely. Anything your own could be requisitioned at any time for the use of your oppressor. You'd go over to Hales Owen in in a lunch break or something and there'd be soldiers standing around you know, with arms and, you know, that would be a normal thing for you. You might look at your kids and think, how are they going to grow up? What opportunities is there going to be for them? Because they're effectively second-class citizens. And then, of course, you don't know how long it's going to go on for. See, when we see films like what we've just seen at the end of the Second World War, we know it lasted for six years, which, as bad as it was, we know it had an end. If you were living at it in the time... You didn't know how long it was going to go on for. You had no idea. So imagine you're a Jew. You're one of God's chosen special people. And down the centuries, God's promised he's going to send this deliverer. 
You've been waiting. You've been expecting. You've been looking for the signs. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins to attract attention. He heals people. He walks on water. We've sung a song already this morning which just lists some of the things that Jesus did. Then he raises Lazarus from the dead, which, you know, if there's levels, you know, walking on water's pretty good, but raising the dead, that's something else. This was no early act of CPR either. Lazarus had been bound in grave clothes and he'd been in the grave for four days and the body, the Bible said that he smelt. So he was already starting to go. He was definitely dead. Jesus raised him from the dead just by the word of what he said. So he's attracting attention, not just by his amazing miracles, but also for the words he said. And there's a very telling verse in Matthew 7, and it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So the people are recognising something different about Jesus. He was known as a miracle man and also the Jewish teacher, the rabbi. And some people began to even wonder, was this, is this the guy? Is this the man we've been waiting for? Is this the Messiah? And Jesus said to his disciples once, you know, who are people saying that I am? And, you know, they gave various answers. And then he said to Peter, who do you say I am? He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter had seen it. Peter had got it. So you live in this occupied land. You're expecting a deliverer to come and sort it out. There's this guy doing the rounds who's performed miracles. He speaks with authority and some have claimed he's the Messiah. The excitement is building. Now Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times before and likely had friends there. But this visit on Palm Sunday was not just a taz into town, you know. You get up on Saturday morning, what are we going to do today? Oh, could do with going to the bull ring, let's go to Birmingham. It wasn't that kind of deal. Jesus had chosen his time carefully. This was planned. It took place, the triumphal entry, a Jewish Passover time. So it was very, very visible. Scholars reckon there could have been two and a half million visitors in Jerusalem at that time passing through. Jesus picked a dramatic moment. Sometimes when Jesus performed miracles, he said to people, go away and keep it yourselves, don't say anything. But that wasn't the case this time. This was no under-the-radar mission. This was big. So on the way, Jesus instructs his disciples to go and get this young colt. And I must admit, I didn't know what a colt was really, but it's a baby donkey basically. Go and get this colt that's tied up by the root and bring him here and I'm going to ride on him. Now I was a little bit concerned when you first read this because it sounds for all the world like Jesus is saying, just go off and help yourself to somebody else's baby donkey, which is a bit of a concern, isn't it? Because we don't believe in doing that. It sounds like it was probably a prearranged thing. Either that or Jesus was so famous that just to say the Lord needs the donkey was enough for people to recognise what was going on. So why did he pick the young colt, the young donkey? A lot of you who know me well will know that I don't really do animals, you know, not because I have anything personally against them, they're just a bit unpredictable. You never quite know what they're going to do. Or So I'm a little wary of animals, but even with my limited knowledge, 
I know that you don't take a young animal that's never been ridden, chuck your coat over the back jump on and off you go. They have to be broken in. Don't really know what that involves, but it's a long process and you have to get them used to it. You can't just do it. So why did Jesus pick the difficult one? Why didn't he go for the easier, the older animal? And there was a reason. It wasn't just him being awkward in any way, it was a reason. And what it was was if anything was used that was new or specific for a purpose, it painted a picture that this was a sacred thing. The cart that the guys used to use to carry the Ark of the Covenant was only used for that purpose, nothing else. So the fact that Jesus chose something that was new and something that was fresh and that had never been ridden before, he was painting a picture, he was giving a message, he was saying, this is a sacred mission, this isn't just any old mission, this is special. And obviously the animal itself must have recognised something about the authority of Jesus that he actually allowed him to get on his back and ride into Jerusalem. So the people start to gather and they're screaming and they're crying, they're shouting, Hosanna. And the word Hosanna means save us. And if you think about the implication, they're living in this under occupation. And they did something here that we all do. They saw kind of the micro when God saw the macro picture. They saw God sending a deliverer. They saw the Roman oppressor. They put two and two together and thought, yes, Jesus is coming. He's going to set us free. He's going to get rid of these Romans off our back. And Jesus could have done that. And if he had have done, if he'd have come in as a big warrior and driven out the Romans, you know, that would have gone down as a really significant event in history. And it would have been written in a history book And it would have been significant. But history moves on, as we know. And the book then would have been closed. And something else would have happened. And it would have been a one-off significant event in history. But what Jesus had come to do, we know, it wasn't a one-off significant event in history. He was writing something that wasn't going to get closed, but it was going to go on and on into the future. He could see the big picture of what he'd come to do. Whereas the Jews only saw what was literally in front of their faces. And we do that, don't we, so often. We want a situation sorted that's right in front of our eyes. And it doesn't happen the way we think because God can see a much bigger picture. The Jews had such a potential as a nation. They stood at the turn of history itself. The very Messiah, the saviour of the world, was right there in front of their eyes. And there's always been a difference, hasn't there, between seeing something or hearing about something and then being there in the flesh when it happens. And I don't know if any of you, I, I can't, can go back to something where you were there when history was being made. You know, you might have been part of it or just watching. Most of us, we see it on the TV. But to actually be somewhere when history itself is being made must be absolutely amazing. And the, another prophet, Zechariah, again, strange name, he had foretold this. He said... In his book, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But there was something else about this donkey that the crowd had kind of missed. You see, a couple of times in the past in Jewish history, this sort of event had happened before. A conquering king had come and ridden into the city, and the people had cheered, and they'd waved their palm branches, and they'd shouted in the same way. 
The difference was both times before the person had come in, the king had come in riding on a horse. And that was a symbol of battle and it was a symbol of war, but the donkey was a symbol of peace. So again, Jesus is painting a picture. He's giving you a message. I am the deliverer. I am the Messiah. This is a sacred mission, but I've come in peace and not war. The people only saw the here and now and not the bigger picture. So moving on into Mark 11, verse 12 said, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for fruit, for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. The disciples heard him say it. Verse 20, in the morning as they were going along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And there's a bit of a strange story, isn't it? And I must admit, I do have a certain amount of empathy with Jesus on this withering plants thing, because I too am also fairly capable of withering a few plants. Not through any words I say, I don't know, they just come into my house and they die. And sometimes you have a birthday and someone gives you a plant and there's an element of nervousness, you know. Are they going to come back to my house in a couple of weeks and expect to see this really healthy specimen of a plant? Because they may be disappointed and I'm really sorry if that's the case. And then sometimes, of course, it works the other way. I'm... In our garden, we've got a corner where there's a couple of shrubs and every summer, this bindweed comes up and it goes round and round and round and round the plants and you can't get rid of it. And it's a nightmare and you think, can't we just find something that will shrivel that up? So last week, I dug it all out, dug out all the shrubs, inspected the ground, couldn't see sight or sign of this bindweed. Yes. And then yesterday, I went out and I looked and it's all sprouting up everywhere and you're like... You know, come on, Jesus, can you curse that? Can we get rid of it, please? That would be good. But why does Jesus curse the fig tree? What had he got against it? And there's a little bit of um, discussion as to actually what this really means. Some people believe that um, the fig tree represented Israel and Jesus was saying, look, you know, I've had enough of this cycle and this fruitlessness. And uh, he, he made the plants shrivel up and die as a, a kind of a symbol of, you know, lack of potential and how he felt about lack of potential. Some people are related to the verses that come next. Um, because the next part of the story, the disciples obviously are quite impressed by Jesus's, um, the way he's handled this fig tree. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. These verses have led to a bit of controversy over the years, to be honest, particularly the bit that says, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. 
And it's always dangerous when we take one verse out of the Bible and build a whole thing around just one verse. We need to see things in context all the time. Does that literally mean that anything we believe, anything we say, all we have to do is believe hard enough and we'll get it? If that were the case, you know, it would collide and clash with other verses in the Bible. Because you could pray for someone who's perhaps just about to die and you could pray and pray and pray and believe and believe and believe. And if that was the case, they wouldn't die. But the Bible quite clearly says that everybody dies eventually. So it it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. We have to see it in context. And, you know, I think Jesus gives us a big clue when he's saying don't, it's not to be taken absolutely literally. The clue comes, I think, when he starts talking about us moving mountains. Does Jesus really mean that as Christians we can go about making major tectonic plate shifts on the earth, do you think? And a couple of weeks ago my brother came around to see me and they'd just been on holiday for a skiing trip in Vancouver. And he was saying when they got there they were really pleased that it snowed, which you would be, wouldn't you, if you were going skiing. We, we hear sometimes in the Alps that with global warming it doesn't always snow. And people spend all this money and it's okay with snow because we're really clever and we can make snow. But can you imagine how devastating it would be to get on your skiing holiday and find out that a load of Christians had been there before you. Not only was there no snow but there were no mountains either. It would be quite a disappointment wouldn't it? So I think Jesus is giving us a bit of a clue here. You know, this isn't to be necessarily taken. It's got to be taken in context. And the the other problem we have as believers, because we live in a Western consumeristic and quite individualistic, that's hard to say, um, society, we take a view on things based on our worldview. And if I said to you, you know, whatever you ask for, you'll receive, it can feel a little bit like getting dropped off at Merry Hill with a thousand pounds in your pocket. Not that that's ever happened to me, but, you know, whatever I want, I've just got to say it and I'll get it. Because that's the worldview that we we live in. When the people who heard Jesus said this didn't live in that worldview, they lived in a different context. They didn't live in a place that said, I want, I need, I feel. It was more about us and we and the community. And this would have had a big impact on sort of the, some of the things that were asked for in prayer. And it's a challenge, isn't it, to us about what we ask for. Do we ask in the micro, me, me, my life, you know? And God asks us to present our request to him. And so he's not saying there's a problem with that. But sometimes we need to think bigger than that. How often in prayer do you pray for patience? How often do you pray for wisdom? How often do you pray for strength or an increase in compassion? Try praying for forgiveness, for hope, for more love, for encouragement, for peace or for joy. Try praying for the needs not of your own but for your community, your nation, your local school, the old lady or the single parent down the road. Pray in faith believing that it will be yours. These are surely some of the prayers that God likes to answer. Leon mentioned last week that there's been a lot of talk about prayer in our nation over the last couple of weeks since Mwamba collapsed and almost died on the football pitch. 
And I think it's great that when things go wrong, that people do turn to God and do turn to prayer, even if they wouldn't do it normally. But some of these prayers are a little bit like superstition. You know, oh, we'll try God. We've tried everything else. Or, you know, the medical teams are working, but we'll try God as well. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what Jesus is trying to say here is he's looking for prayers of faith. Yeah? He's looking, if we're going to reach our potential in prayer, we've got to pray prayers of faith. Believe that he will answer. And we also need to be people who seek to have our hearts right with God and one another. Because he goes on to say, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. As I've thought and reflected over all of this the last couple of weeks, there's a word that's really come to mind and it's the word potential I've sort of seen it over and over again in the stories I've gone through first there's the potential of the Jewish nation who could have been a nation that really showed the world what it was like to be a godly nation then there's the potential of the fig tree to bear fruit and the potential of the prayer of faith problem when we hear the word potential is it can take you back to your school old school report days can't it did not reach his potential could have done better could have tried harder I um a few years ago my son took his GCSEs and um in one of his particular subjects he was adamant he was going to get an A his teacher was equally adamant he was going to get a B And I remember the really awful parents' evening where we sat and my son told the teacher he was going to get an A and she told him he was going to get a B. Who was right, do you think? My son was right, he got an A. And when he went to get his results, he was expecting the teacher to come and go, you know, Sam, I was wrong, well done. She didn't, but hey. You know, we can have potential and we can see it in that way. Maybe you started the beginning of the year with great hopes for weight loss or fitness or some other kind of goal. And here we are, it's the 1st of April. The year is a quarter of the way through. Did you hit your potential? Don't have to answer that. I've taught many kids to play the piano over the years and some have really reached their potential and some really, really haven't. And you can label yourself as a failure when you think about the word potential. But I want to kind of illustrate potential in a slightly different way this morning and hopefully make you think about it. On the stage, I have a football. This is as close as I will ever get to a sort of an illustration based on football. So I'm going to bend down. I'm going to pick the football up. And as I've bent down and picked that up, I've used some energy. Not a lot of energy, admittedly, but I have used energy nevertheless. And there's a law in physics that says energy can't be created and it can't be destroyed. It just gets transferred from one form to another. She weren't expecting a physics lesson this morning. And as I've lifted the ball up to this height, I have given that ball energy. And that energy is called potential. So this ball has potential. But why does it have potential? Does it have potential because it's a ball? Does it have potential because it's a sphere? Does it have potential because of its colour, it's black and it's white? Does it have potential because it was made in Germany? 
I did think it would probably be made in China, but for the sake of authenticity, I did check this morning it was actually made in Germany. Does it have potential because of that? Is its potential because this is actually a ball that lives here at Zion Christian Centre in the youth department. So it's slightly holy ball. No, it isn't. (laughs) Does it have its potential because it lives at Zion Christian Centre? No, it doesn't. It has potential because of its position, because of where I'm holding it. As soon as I let go of it, it hits the deck. It no longer has the potential It no longer has the position. When I did that at the nine o'clock service, it bounced three times back to me and I caught it under my foot. But it's failed this time, never mind. So it no longer has the position and it no longer has the potential. Our potential as Christians is nothing to do with where you were born. It's nothing to do with who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like, how much you weigh, how many talents you have or don't have and it's nothing to do with your qualifications it doesn't matter how much you earn it doesn't matter what car you drive or the house you live in it doesn't matter who your parents were you may not even know who your parents were that doesn't matter your kids may be great or they may not be you can be age 16 or you can be 60 you can be black, white, rich, poor thin, fat, tall, short you're getting it Your potential is not in who you are. Your potential in God is for one reason only, and it's your position in Christ. That's it. That's all. Nothing else. Your position in Christ. Does that mean then that you don't have to do anything in one sense? It does mean that. Now I know we've just looked at James and we've looked at faith and we've said faith without works and we need to do works and and all that we've unpacked over the last few weeks and that's absolutely right. And this isn't in any way clashing with that, it's supplementing it. Because if we do all our works and all our efforts from our own potential, there on the ground where the ball now is, although I could do with it back Simon if that's all right. Yeah, if we do all of that from that point of the ground, yeah? We're doing it in our own strength. We're living in our own strength and in our own potential. And we get tired and we get drained and we get exhausted. We need to do everything in our Christian lives from the position that God has put us in and the potential that we have in Jesus Christ. The potential we have because we're free. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all the mess-ups and all the mess and the screw-ups and the, you know, the things you've done wrong and you've shouted at the kids. It's a bit like God goes to the cinema and to see a 3D movie and he puts on the glasses and he sees a different dimension. And he sees you as if you were Christ. He doesn't see the mess-ups. He doesn't see the bad stuff. That is your potential and that is your position in Jesus Christ this morning. And of all the things to celebrate, this is what Easter is about. It's about our potential and our potential in Jesus Christ. And we're going to stand again and we're going to sing and we're just going to celebrate again if the band could come back. And as you do, as we sing this song and the chorus says, glory to God, glory to God forever. And it talks about taking my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. And as we sing it, I want you to imagine yourself not in the position that you see yourself in, but in your position in Christ. I want you to imagine that your potential and what it could be in Jesus Christ. And as we worship him again, as we've already done, let's thank him. 
Let's thank him and praise him. Let's lavish on him that praise. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about what you can do. Your potential is your position in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and we'll sing together.